Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, we have ushers who would love to get a Bible into your hand. If you forgot your Bible or didn't bring a Bible, grab one of these. If you don't own a Bible, take one of these home as our gift to you. And, and go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Now normally, uh, a, norm, a normal Sunday morning here, we, we would spend time in worship singing before we jump into the Word. And, and why would we do that? Why, why would we sing? Why would we have worship before we open up the Word? Because I, I believe that Scripture would teach us that worship prepares our heart for what God would have to say to us. And, and worship is this opportunity where our, our hearts are placed in a way where, where I want to see clearly who God is. And so we, we worship, and then we, then we jump into God's Word together, and we usually end with worship too. Why? Because we want to respond back to how God has worked in our hearts as His Word was opened. So, so we're, we want to be a church that's all about the Word and all about worship, so that, that's why we do this. And, but the question is, well, well, why do I worship though? Psalm 63, you don't have to turn there. You can stay in Isaiah 9 if you like, but Psalm 63 is this, this great psalm where David talks about a heart of worship. Why, why would we spend so much time in worship as a church? And he says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So, so that's the beginning of worship. It, it's where you come to that place where you recognize your desperate need for God. And it's out of that desperation where, where, where we come, I, I, I recognize how desperate I am apart from God. And so what do we do? We come desperate in worship. Because David goes on, because of that desperation, he goes, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He begins to seek the Lord. He says, because of your steadfast love, it's better than life. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I lift up my hands. David says, I'm desperate, so I seek the Lord. And when I see him in all his power and how he delivers, that, that yeah, I have a desperate need, but God's got a great power and provision. And so what do we do? We worship. I mean, the very first Christmas, I love the very first Christmas. What do you see? You see angels interrupting the night with worship. They couldn't help but, but exclaim this worship. Why? Why? Because the night Jesus was born, the, the angels have been watching this plan unfold. It says in 1 Peter that the angels lean in on God's plan. They, they, they want to learn more about how this whole thing of grace works. I mean, think about that, that angels from the very beginning, they, they see that, that we made a horrible decision in the garden and, and the world is broken by sin and they're watching this plan unfold. And so when Jesus, God in flesh, comes to earth, what do they do? They can't help but burst out in this worship. When, when salvation finally came to earth, when God took on human flesh, when God invaded our broken, sinful world with, with his wisdom, with his glory, with his, with his grace, with his power, when, when the almighty creator of the universe, the sovereign king, put on human flesh and came humbled as a baby, the angels could only respond in one way. In Luke 2, you see, they burst out saying, glory to God in the highest. And so we want to join with those angels. We, we want to join with the saints who have gone on before us who right now are worshiping around the throne. We want to open up God's word and we want to worship. And so this morning, here's what we're going to do. The, 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 the worship team is going to stay up on the stage. We're, we're going to work our way through a couple of the names that the prophet Isaiah said, this is who Jesus is. 
We'll unpack one of the names and then we're gonna respond in worship. Then I'll share another name and again, we'll respond in worship and the second time by partaking in the Lord's Supper. And so if you've got your, your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter nine, look down at verse six. It says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, we don't think a lot about names usually when we choose names for our kids. Not, not to the same extent that you would see in the Old Testament. We, we may think of a, a, you know, I want to name my child after someone who's meant a lot to me. Or, or, or maybe we want to name our child a, a name we, we, you know, there might be a famous person that's got that name. Like, oh, I, I like that name. Or, or sometimes, you know, there is a meaning. We, I, I want my kid's name because of this meaning. Sometimes we just choose names because, well, oh, that just sounds like a cool name. I like that name. And you look the meaning up later, right? Or, or maybe as a kid, you grew up and go, I wonder what my name means, and you look it up. Well, here's the, the crazy thing. I started looking up some meanings of names that may sound cool to you see what they actually mean. Here's, here's a couple of them. Cassandra, pretty name. It means she who snares men. That's a great name, Cassandra. All right. How about this? Belinda, another, another nice name. Belinda, it's a really nice name. Do you know what it means? It actually means beautiful snake. All right. Tough. How about this? Okay, Cameron. Or if your name Cameron, maybe you've already looked this up and you already, this hurts. It, Cameron, it means crooked nose. Like that's what Cameron actually means. It means crooked nose. So I started thinking, well, what about last names? Because it's, it's kind of cool to, to grab a last name now. It's sort of a hip thing. We, we named our first kid McKinley. That's kind of a last name. Well, if, if you've named your kid Kennedy, Kennedy actually means, you ready? Misshapen head, right? That's what Kennedy means. Sorry if your name's Kennedy. But in the Bible, so we just, we just, we just grab names. In, in the Bible, names actually meant something. They revealed character. So, so all these names that Isaiah is saying, this is who the Messiah will be, all these names reveal the character of the Messiah to come. They reveal who Jesus is. And it says a child will be born, a son is given. So you know, well, that's gonna come as, as a baby. The Messiah is gonna be born to us. It's gonna come from God and, and a government will be upon his shoulders. So he's gonna establish a kingdom. Okay, we get that. A kingdom's coming. It says he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, like wait, what did you say? You said mighty God, this baby is, is mighty God? You stop, I don't get the way, you're saying that, that he's mighty God. He, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion is this, this idea that Jesus didn't come just as a great teacher. He didn't come as a great philosopher. He didn't come as a great leader, but he, he came unlike any other baby born. He came as God. Colossians 2.9 says that, that in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in the bodily form. So, so Jesus, he's more than just a man, more than just a child. He's mighty God. I mean, flip over to, to Isaiah chapter 40. Go over a few pages to Isaiah chapter 40. Who is this mighty God? What does Jesus look like? Who are we celebrating here? Who are we worshiping here this morning as mighty God? Isaiah 40, in verse 12, it says this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? 
So, so who is this God? Who is this mighty God that's come as the Messiah? It says the one who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. I mean, think about that. Have you ever tried to, you know, you get a little bit of water in you, and how, how much water can you, can you hold on to, right? For, for how long can you hold on to it? Not a lot, not very long, right? Because we're not mighty. But, but this mighty God says, I hold all the waters of the earth. I looked it up. There are 1.2 sextillion liters of water on earth. Never heard that name before either. I, I, what's a sextillion? It's one followed by 21 zeros. Right? That's how many liters of water. And, 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 and think of it this way. If the world was flat, if there were no mountains, no valleys, it was just a, a smooth ball, the water would fully cover the entire earth three kilometers deep. And God says, I hold that in my hand. I've got this. Like, I don't know what your, your thing is that you brought in this morning that's, that's difficult to walk with. God says, I've got it. It can fit right here. When you, when you release it from your hands and place it in God's hands, all the water on the earth, nothing in God's hands, but that, that's, that's not it. Look at verse 12, it goes on. He who measures the water, the hall of his hand, it says, and mark the heavens with a span. This idea of marking off the heavens, it means he's measured the universe, measures the universe with a span. This is it. This is a span right here. It's from your pinky to your thumb. That's a span. So God's saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that whole universe, everything in it, that fits right about here, God says. Think how big that is. We measure the universe in something called light years, right? That's how we measure the, the distance that light travels in a year. Light travels at 300,000 kilometers a second. So that means when I do that, when I snap my finger, light's gone around the world eight times. If, if you were to take off in a, in a ship right now that could travel at the speed of light and you're gonna travel to the sun, it would, it would take you eight and a half minutes to get there. Okay, to our sun, eight and a half minutes. So the light we see from the sun, it's eight and a half minutes to get to us. So, so right now, as you see the sun, it could be burned out right now. We won't know for eight and a half minutes, all right? No, we're not gonna wait. Um, so, right? If we wanted to travel, okay, forget our sun. If we wanted to go to the next nearest star and we're gonna travel at the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers a second, it would take us 40 years to get there. 40 years. If, if we wanted to travel from the edge of our Milky Way galaxy, just our galaxy, if we want to travel from edge to edge at the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers a second, it would take us 100,000 years to get to the edge of the Milky Way. It would take us 100 billion years to get to the edge of the known universe. And God says, yeah, I measure it like that. It, it's, it's a span to me. You go on in verse 12, it's not just the the hugest of greatest of things, but even the smallest things that God knows. He says, I enclose the dust of the earth in a measure. Dust, you think how small that is. Like you clean your house and you think, man, I've got this house spotless and it's so clean. And then sunbeams come through the window and it's like dust everywhere, right? But I couldn't even see it until the sun hit it. And God's like, yeah, I got that. I even have those smallest of things. God holds the smallest of the, the atoms that make us up. God holds those together. 
the atoms. Remember grade seven science? Yeah, neither do I, right? But it's atoms, I looked it up, right? Atoms are made of what? That they're made of protons and neutrons and electrons, right? And they're all spinning around in there. We're, we're made up of these atoms. And here's the thing. If you were to take all the atoms that make up your body and, and the, the space in between the protons and the electrons, if you were to take that space out, scientists say that we're 99.999% space. So if you take that space out, so the atoms all come together, the protons and the electrons actually come together, all of us could fit on the head of a needle. Pretty cool, right? Scientists say that they're, they're not totally sure what keeps the, the protons, the, the neutrons and the electrons, the negative energy and the positive energy, they're not sure what keeps them spinning apart so they don't come together or so they don't blow apart. They, they call it, here's what they say, they say they're, they're held in that place by a strong force is what scientists call it. I would say this, Colossians 1.17, that says Jesus is before all things and in him they are held together. This Jesus, this mighty God, that he measures the dust, he holds the atoms of creation together. Look down at verse 25 of chapter 40. God says, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Talk about the stars now. He says, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So imagine yourself looking up at the stars at night. It's a, it's a beautiful, clear night. We can see, what they say is, if you're just looking with your eyes in a, a really good, dark night, you can see about 3,000 stars in our sky. Galileo invents the telescope with his crude telescope. He could see 30,000 stars. The number of stars in our Milky Way, just in our in our galaxy alone, NASA estimates between 100 to 400 billion stars. That's huge. Now think about it though, that, that, that our galaxy is only one of 100 billion galaxies. So, so do the math on how many stars that is. It'll make your head hurt, right? There's so many stars. Look what it says. He says that, lift up your eyes and see who created these he who brings their host out by number. Do you guys remember, this was really popular maybe like 10 years ago where, where people could, you could buy and name a star, right? You could go and, and you would write a, into the company now, probably online, right? And you'd say, I'm gonna name this star and you could give it a name and then you'd give it as a, as a present to somebody. I bought you a star, right? So romantic, so nice, right? So easy, you could just go online and do it and you're like, hey, here's your star. There it is, Billy Bob's right there, right? Great present. If, you, if it's like Christmas Eve and you haven't got anything yet, get somebody a star, right? And you can name it. Here's what this verse is telling us, though. God's going, you can't name that star. I already named them all. I've named all the billions and billions. And bi How many stars are there that God knows by name? If, if everybody on earth had one million books, each as thick as a dictionary, where we would write down the name of every star that God has named, we'd not write them all down, we would still run out of books. God says, I call them all by name. Not one is missing. We serve a mighty God. And listen, if he holds, if he holds the stars in place, he can hold you in your depression, in your anxiety. If, if, if he holds the moon in orbit, he can hold you in your financial struggle. If, if he holds the atoms together, he can hold you in your family. 
If, if he holds the water of the oceans, he, he can hold you in your marriage struggles. If, if, if he holds the sun in the sky, he can hold you in your job loss, in your sickness. Hold on to the God who holds all of it together. You know, I, I gotta tell you, I, I love Christmas. I really do. I mean, our tree was up in our house weeks ago. I mean, we have lights in our house. We have the whole deal. That we have Christmas music going 24-7. All, if you hate going to the mall because you don't come to my house because Christmas music all the time, right? Because I just love it. But, but, but in the story of Christmas, here, here's what I find. Because we get so used to Christmas, we can kind of lose the truth of who Jesus is in the story of Christmas, and, and yeah, yeah, for sure, Jesus came as a baby humbly in a manger. But, but I like how C.S. Lewis says it in the last battle, where he says this stable had something inside it that was bigger than the whole world. He's the mighty God who holds creation together, Colossians 1.7 says, 17 says. The, the wind and the waves obey his command, Luke 8 says. People, people marveled at the authority of Jesus' teaching, Matthew 7 says. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, Revelation 22. He's, he's no one greater than him. He has no equal. He's the eternal God who was and is and is to come, Revelation 1.8. And, and so how do we respond to this mighty God, Jesus? How do we respond to him? If you look in scripture at the people who, who met Jesus while he was on earth, when they, they heard his claims that, of what he was claiming, that he was the mighty God, there are only three ways that people responded to him. You either hated him because he was claiming to be God, so you wanted to kill him. Or, or you feared him because he was a lunatic you wanted to get away from or you fell down and worshiped him and you gave him your life, every single part of it. You embraced him, you, you gave him your highest allegiance. You said, you're the reason I'm getting up today. You're the reason for everything to, that I'm gonna do. You're, you're the life that I live, it's all for you. Listen, listen, those are the three ways that you would have approached Jesus. You would either hate him, you would fear him, or you'd worship him. You know, nobody in Jesus' time just sort of liked Jesus. Nobody thought, he's an inspiring guy. He's got some good teaching. I, I like the way he lives his life. N nobody said that in Jesus' time. And, and when, we, when we say it in our time that, that I kind of like Jesus, it's because we haven't grasped what Christmas is all about. To truly see Jesus, to see the mighty God. You, you can't just sort of like Jesus. If Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, you have to worship him. You, you have to give him everything. I mean, Christmas shouts out that, that it isn't us trying to earn our way to God. It's not us having some prophet introduce us to God. No, God himself came and said, here I am. I've come to you. And so we stand in awe. We stand in awe of the greatest story that's ever been told, that Jesus came to us and he is the mighty God. In Isaiah 9, 6, it says that he is a mighty God, but it also says that he's a wonderful counselor. 
He's a wonderful counselor, not, not just mighty. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 40. It says, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. So he's a, he's a mighty God, but, but how is he coming? It says, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is, is before him. That, that's just a, a fancy word for saying he's coming to, to repay the, the justice the, the, to, to when you lose something and someone comes back and says, I'm gonna reward you for what you've lost. And then it says this in verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. I mean, this is the God who created the universe with a word. This is the God who parted the Red Sea. This is the, the God in Jesus Christ who walked on water, who healed the sick, who caused the blind to see, who, who died and rose again. And listen, it says he, he's, he wants to come alongside. He wants to come be your wonderful counselor. I mean, if that doesn't bring your heart to worship, I, I'm not sure what will. Almighty God is your counselor. Now it says in Isaiah 9, 6, he's your wonderful counselor. That word wonderful, it, it means amazing, astonishing, awe-inspiring, mind-blowing. That's the kind of counselor that Jesus is. Not just a normal counselor, he's a wonderful counselor. In fact, look at verse 13 of Isaiah 40. It says, who, who's measured the spirit of the Lord? Who can figure out all of who God is? Who, who, can, who can say this is where God begins and God ends? It says this, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who, who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? He is an awesome counselor, a wonderful counselor. Now, what's that mean for us? It means that, that when, you, when you go to Jesus as your counselor, if you, if you go to anybody as a counselor, they're first gonna wanna know about your past a little bit, right? If you go see somebody who's a, a counselor, they're gonna ask about your past and they may go all the way back to childhood. Hey, tell me a bit about, about you, what happened when you were growing up and or at least they'll go back to the beginning of, of why you're coming in. Hey, hey, tell me what's going on. Well, what's happened that brought you here? Well, Jesus, as the wonderful counselor, he has already a knowledge of your past. He doesn't need to ask what's going on. He knows your past. He knows the secret hurts and pains of your past. He, he knows the secret sins of your past. He knows the lost dreams of your past. He, he knows those things that, that you don't tell anybody else about, but you carry them around, the, the guilt and the shame of that. He goes, I know those. I know all about your past but he's also a wonderful counselor because he knows your present as well. I mean, sometimes you ever catch yourself saying this, you might be talking to somebody who, who's kind of walking alongside you. Maybe they're a friend, maybe they're a counselor, they're just a trusted friend, and then you say these words, man, you just don't understand. You don't know what it's like. You, you don't get what it's like to live like this. You, you can't imagine what I'm going through right now, but here's the great thing about our wonderful counselor. You can't say that to Jesus. You can't say you can't imagine what I'm going through right now. Because Jesus knows your present pressures. Jesus knows your present temptations. Jesus knows your present trials. I, I love in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how God became flesh. So God doesn't just stand way above us, not getting it. God becomes flesh and goes through the same trials and temptations and hurts and pains and loss and struggles. So he knows this very minute what perhaps no other soul on earth knows about what you're walking through right now.
He knows our past. He knows our present. He also knows our future. I love that. No, no earthly counselor can actually say, well, well, here's what tomorrow will look like. And, and hey, let me tell you about what next week's gonna turn out. Let, let me give you your future. Nobody can do that. But, but our counselor, Jesus Christ, he, he can say, not only do I know the future, but I've got a plan and a purpose for your future. I'm gonna guide you through those landmines that are gonna be in your way. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be with you in this. I'm, I'm going on ahead of you in this. Just If you would come in behind me so I can lead you. Only our wonderful counselor can do that. Now here's the thing about this wonderful counselor. We, we would say this on Christmas, that Jesus came as this mighty God, wonderful counselor. He came to us as a gift on Christmas. But, but here's the kind of gift that this wonderful counselor would be though. I mean, with, with this kind of gift, it's, it's kind of like this. It's, some gifts are hard to receive. If Christmas morning, you know, rolls around and then I've heard someone say it this way and you open up on Christmas morning and, and you get a gift from, from a friend or your spouse and you open up and, and it's an exercise video and a diet book. <laughs> Tough gift to receive, right? Oh, great. Merry Christmas to you too. You think I'm flabby. Great, right? You know, you, to receive that, and by the way, not a great gift to give. So if spouses, if you've already got this gift, take it back, get them another one. They don't want, oh, anyway, right? So when you get this gift, you, you have to actually humble yourself to receive a gift like that, don't you? You have to swallow your pride a little bit. Let me, let me think of more of a practical way that actually could happen in our lives instead of that, that kind of goofy example. Have you ever been in a place where you needed something? Maybe it was financial. And you're in a tough spot financially and, and someone came alongside you or the church came alongside you and said, hey, we want to help you out. Do you remember how that felt? Maybe it was tough. Maybe you, you turned it down. If you accepted the help, it was, a, it was a time where you had to be humble. You had to swallow your pride a little bit. You, you had to admit, man, I guess I'm not as self-sufficient as I think I am. I guess I can't make it all by myself, so I'm going to accept this gift. Well, listen, listen, Jesus comes as the wonderful counselor. Think about what that's saying about us, to accept this gift of a counselor. We need to step up and say, I, I, I'm a wreck. I can't do this on my own. I need an advocate to stand in my place. I need a counselor to come alongside me, to take care of me, to take care of the hurt, the shame, the brokenness, to take care of the things that I'm struggling with. I can't do this on my own. And this is where Jesus can be such a hard gift for some people. Don't tell me I need Jesus. I got this. I'm a good person. I can take care of this. I can work hard. I can do good things. And then you look at the whole Christmas story and you see that God himself had to become flesh and had to go to the cross and, and suffer infinitely. So, so, so Christmas steps in and says, no, you're actually lost and broken and separated. You're in bad enough shape that nothing less than God himself, as son of God, would have to die for you. And so when we read that he's the wonderful counselor, it, it means that, that we can't do this on our own. I think I've given this example before, but I remember I was ta uh, walking and talking with a friend of mine. He doesn't, doesn't know Jesus at all, but he, he knows kind of what I was doing. And so he said to me, he goes, Kai, I think that, that Christians kind of use the whole Jesus thing as a crutch. And I remember turning and going, Jim, we do not use Jesus as a crutch. He is the total stretcher. 
A crutch kind of gives the implication that I can kind of do a bit of, no, 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 I got nothing. I'm laid out flat without Jesus. And so, so if you're going to accept this gift of wonderful counsel, you have to admit that you're a sinner. You have to admit that you need grace. You have to give up the control of your life. You need to give everything over to Jesus. You have to go lower than maybe what you really wanted to go and and swallow your pride at a level that, that nobody wants to do it. Why? Because it's hard to admit we need help. It's hard to admit that there are things that I don't understand. It's hard to admit that there are things that I can't do on my own. It's it's hard to reach out. It's hard to cry out for help. It's it's hard to confess weakness. It's, It's hard to confess ignorance. Now, why are these things so hard? I think they can be so hard because we believe some lies of of the world. We we believe the lies that we're autonomous. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. I'm my own person. We believe the lie of of self-sufficiency. I have everything within myself to take care of myself, to be who I'm supposed to be, to do what I'm supposed to do. And we think I can take this on my own. Or maybe you don't struggle with those lies. Maybe you struggle with this lie that that the, the problem facing me is much too large. It can never be overcome. Because we don't see him as the wonderful counselor, we don't see him as the mighty God, so that, that problem's so close in front of us that it seems so big. We miss how big and awesome and wonderful and mighty our counselor is. And we have these lies going on. We resist God's grace. We, we act like we're okay. We, we push back on the wonderful counselor. We, we don't seek him. We push aside his word. We don't believe the promises of his word. And maybe this morning, maybe this morning, we can begin to speak truth to ourselves. Lord, I'm in desperate need of you today. I mean, the, the, the beautiful story of Christmas is that God wasn't willing to leave us in our brokenness, to, to leave us in this, this desperate state, but, but he came to us. And listen, God had every right to come as the mighty God, the God who comes with might. He had every right to come with judgment and say, here's where you broke my holy, righteous law. Here's where you rebelled against me. Here's where you're my enemy, so I'm coming to judge you. He could have done that, but he he chose another way, not because of what he saw in us, but because of who he is. So at Christmas, we celebrate a God who is so full of grace and mercy, where, where he chose to give grace to those who don't deserve it. He chose to rescue those who who couldn't rescue themselves. He he chose to forgive those who rebelled again and again. He he chose not to leave us in blindness, but to open our eyes. He he chose to empower those who are unable. And this gift is free to us. It's free, but it's costly. In fact, I'm going to call the ushers forward now, and they're going to begin to hand out the elements for communion, for the Lord's Supper. And as it goes by, you'll notice there are two cups stacked on top of each other. They're just gonna hand it out right now. Grab both cups, the bread's in the bottom cup. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Because of this, it reminds us, it reminds us that this gift of a mighty God and a wonderful counselor cost Jesus everything. 
that Jesus gave his body for us. As we hold the bread, we remember his body given for us. He, he, he poured out his blood for us. As we hold the cup, we remember that it's his blood given for us. So that, that, listen, here's the thing. We're not just merely remembering this, but we're actually eating with Jesus. I mean, think about that. Yes, communion is a time to remember the cost. The body given, the, the blood poured out, the, the wrath of God poured out on Christ instead of us. But, but there's something more and deeper even happening here. Not only are we just remembering that, but Jesus is present by his spirit. I mean, if you know Christ this morning, that you're eating this together with fellow believers and you're eating this with Christ. If you don't know Jesus, then yeah, this isn't a moment of worship for you. You can see others. You can watch others as they participate. You can see what it's like. You, you can see the worship happening. It could be for you today. This could be the morning where you say, I'm surrendering it. I need the mighty counselor. I need Christ in my life. And there's this holy moment for us when when. We don't just come to communion acknowledging our sin and unworthiness, but we fellowship with Jesus. We ask him to help us live our lives for the glory of God. So in all our stories and in, in all our sinfulness and all our suffering, that, that because of Jesus, the, the true bread, the one true bread who came from heaven, that, that we now are transformed from sinners and orphans to righteous sons and daughters of God. And so what do we do in communion? What, what, what do we do right now? We look back. We look back at the cross and see the, the sacrifice that was made for us on our behalf. That Christ rose from the grave to bring us victory. We, we, we look forward. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us to do this in remembrance until Jesus comes. Proclaim his death until Jesus comes. And we don't know when Jesus will come, but when he does come, we're promised in Revelation that we're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be so much better than this. A meal where we'll be satisfied, filled, nourished forever. So we look back, we look forward, we look outward. And we see each other and we, we offer forgiveness for those who have hurt us and wounded us. Why? Because we recognize the cross again. We celebrate this moment where we can worship together because of Jesus. We also, we look inward. I mean, Paul says, look at your heart. So if you don't know Christ, this is the moment where you say, this is where I want to follow Jesus. If you do know Christ, that this is the moment where, where, where you, you begin to celebrate the grace of God, where you confess. You confess and understand that this birth of Jesus is such wonderful news. You know, Paul says, don't, don't do it in an unworthy manner. Here, here's what an unworthy manner would be for us as Christ followers. It's where you come to a moment like this where you're remembering Christ and you just don't care. You 
recognize at Christmas that, that Christ came to, to solve, to, uh, the, to provide a solution to the greatest problem we have, the, the brokenness of sin, the, the core tragedy at each of our lives. And, and you come to this moment and it doesn't move you. I was thinking about it this way. When I was uh, my second year in college, I went out west to British Columbia for school. And I, I remember when I first got there and, and driving into the mountains. And, and as an Ontario kid, like I thought Mount St. Louis and, and Blue Mountain were mountains. Yeah, they're not mountains, right? So you, you come in and I spent the whole first long time just going, wow, wow. And I remember driving, driving around just seeing these mountains. But do you know who's not blown away? Who's not moved by, by the mountains? People who live there. I'd be driving a car and we'd come around a bend and I'd go, whoa! And then they go, what? I'm like, those mountains. They go, yeah. How many of us have become gospel locals or Christmas locals? No longer moved by the gospel. No longer in awe. We become numb to it. We become this Christmas local that goes, yeah, nice, Jesus came. I mean, let's this morning lift our eyes again to this truth. Have our hearts filled with worship and awe. Our hearts filled with thankfulness and praise for the mighty God who's also our wonderful counselor.